We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. Hey, how's all you beautiful people out there doing? I am Charles Cole III, and I am with my brothers at Eight Black Hands. I'm very, very happy to see these fellas. Uh, for the record, Sharif is here, but he doesn't follow directions. So, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to let Ray uh, talk bad about Sharif in a second. But as he gears up for that, how you doing today, Chris? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. Blessed as always. Another Sunday, getting ready for the week. Well-fed, well-housed, warm. God is working in my life. So good to see you guys again, too. Good to see y'all again, too. After the world is crazy. Man, who you telling, man? And Ray, my brother, I'm so happy to see you, man. First, tell us how you doing. And then you tell us how Reef is doing. Because I just feel like it's <laughs> so, pleasure so I, I felt like I felt like uh, Chris came in a little pretentious. So I'm cold. Uh, I'm homeless. Uh, and shout out to the folks that are homeless because we want to do work for them, too, so that they can come in next week hate, or bro. weeks after to be a part of the show as well so that, you know, we can rep for them. So, like, uh, shout out to the folks that are less fortunate that uh, are on here rep hunting. So, yeah. And, and about how, Reef. Yes, how's Reef doing? What is Why is Reef not with us right now? Horrible is how Reef is doing. So, <laughs> Reef, hit me up, Reef hit me up earlier this week, right? And he was like, bro, you know, uh, I got an M200. What do I need? I said, so, Reef, you got to order a dummy battery. And he was like, okay, I got it. I'm going to have it Sunday, whatever, right? Didn't say he needed anything else. Hits me like two hours ago, like, hey, uh, I need to get on the stream yard because uh, I need to test this thing out. Hits me five minutes after that. Oh, I don't have the right cords. <laughs> so what do you want me to do? <laughs> I, listen, he, has a, he has a perfectly fine Brio that works just well. I've been I've been in stream yard. I've been here since about seven o'clock because we got guests today. We got special guests and we'll introduce y'all to them in a minute. Uh, but hopefully Reef can get his, uh, his, his audio working soon. Uh, and if not, he'll just have his face up and we just won't be able to hear him. He can't hear us. But um, before you go on, I just want to say, uh-huh. just for the record, just for the record, Eight Black Hands starts as four black men who have an interest in education, who are being dragged by Karens, who come together on a weekly call to help each other and have each other's back in a very much a DIY project. And that DIY project grows. And now all of a sudden we look like we got Prince and R. Kelly videos going on in our backdrops. We First have off. evolved. We have evolved. And one of us, one of us is keeping it real in Philly. He's keeping it all the way real. He's keeping it so real that we can't even see him in the bunker. But every show needs its, it, it, every show needs his brother like like Sharif. Well, listen, it really I, does. Let me let me let me let me just uh because I got a brand to protect. So. Nothing about me and R. Kelly. That's first thing. Yeah, right? you got to bring that hand up on your show, <laughs> yeah, brother. You really got to kill that, bro. Like, we're not even like, why? Like, bro. No, sir. So I disavow. I'm at your backdrop, bro. I'm just looking at your backdrop. That's all. Yeah. I disavow. I'm in the closet. I'm in the closet. Yeah, so, anyways, go so, ahead, bro. Anyways, so move me, on. But we have two special guests. And we and do. And one of the things we talked about. Uh, Chris, we, we, we did a list of, of what we wanted to see this year. And I said I wanted to see receipts. And so, you know, we all get to, uh, to, you know, to do certain shows or whatnot. And I got to produce this one. And I just gave a talk to about 50 parents and students in Oakland. But I felt like this topic needed to be talked about with um, 
it, just with our community, with our larger national community. Now, these numbers may be about Oakland, but these are questions that people should be asking nationally. And Ray, I'm going to lean on you a lot on this because you lead a system and, I, and, and you can help us kind of build the, the national narrative. Now, what y'all are looking at is the blue represents uh, live instruction over Zoom or whatever. And the gray represents like self-guided instructions. OK, so unions have like they, they, they negotiated teachers unions negotiated how much time they can actually give instruction. But if you look, so all these um, district schools are like LAUSD, Oakland, Alameda, San Francisco. To the right are Oakland charter schools. So in what you see in uh, I know it's kind of hard to look at, but just look at how, how large the bars are, even in elementary schools. Many of these schools are almost doubling the level of instruction in elementary school. Let's go over. In middle school, it's much of the same, where Baytech, this is this one with 6.9, right, hours of live instruction versus LAUSD offering 2.3 hours. And then if you go to high school, it's the same thing. Mm. Finally, right? So, so because here's the thing, just because we're in the middle of COVID and crises and all that stuff doesn't mean that your kids don't deserve quality and that you can't ask questions. These are receipts, and all of these have been self-reported by the districts and by these schools. Finally, y'all, I just want y'all to see this. Out of the 10 top Oakland middle schools that serve 50% of low-income students in ELA and math, nine of those 10 are charter schools. Mm-hmm. I just want y'all to, nine mm-hmm. of the 10 best are charter schools. Now, let's look mm-hmm. for the top five schools that serve an A through G completion, meaning graduating black kids and they can go to college eligible. Mm-hmm. The top five, the stars are charter schools. The, the highest district school, the historic school down there is under 50 percent. All right. Just FYI. And then when we look at Latino, it's much of the same out of the top 11 schools that's actually graduating uh, Latino students eligible for college. Nine out of 11 of those are charter schools. So. I just want I know that like I said, I know that's a very Oakland thing, but I did want to give you all an opportunity just to quickly comment on it before we bring our special guests and experts in who just wrote a book about some of this stuff. Right. To actually chime in. So, fellas, just what's your raw. Um, uh, Ray, let me start with you because you lead a system. What is your raw reaction to these numbers? Bro, it's anger uh, because I feel like, you know, regardless of whatever system you're in, you should still be getting an adequate education. You you should still be getting a world class education. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you see, uh, you know, some of these charter schools and they're out dueling these uh, these uh, traditional public schools. And then you wonder why there's so much animosity from the 92 percent of public schools against, you know, the six to eight percent of charter schools. You now see why. Mm-hmm. So charter schools are going to outwork them, right? And so whatever data that you you pull up with regards to uh, if charter schools are outperforming traditional public schools, that raw data that you just showed, it, it it's kind of like you you don't really have to you know all you have to do is let the data talk for you you know because mm-hmm. I know at my school I know I know you know parents are ranting and raving about what we're doing at our school uh, in comparison to uh, what we're getting from some of these uh, local districts local school districts or whatever. Um, we're running circles around them. And so that's why I said previously, I don't want to be compared to these local districts, man, because, you know, they they, they are, they're hell-bent on doing the status quo. We want to do more than the status quo, man. I want y'all to compare me, be like, yo, Ray, how did you do against Success Charter School? Or how did you do against Icon Charter School? Or how did you do against uh, some of the higher-performing democracy prep charter schools? That's what I, who I want to be compared to. I don't want to be compared to my district school. Mm-hmm. We better than that. 
man. So thank you for that, brother. And, and Chris, uh, I want to ask you just as a parent, because part of this episode, right, and part of what we were talking about is equipping our, our, our guests, our parents, the people that listen to us to ask for receipts and what that means. So for you as a parent seeing this um, and you know all the, the shots that people take at charter schools and whatnot, what is your comment as the parent activist in this piece? I mean, I know what it feels like to be the parent that is looking at all these different schools and trying to get in one and jumping on a bus and going from one to the other. I also know what it feels like to be a parent to pull the list. And I know in the Twin Cities, when I had to do that, when that was you know a new experience to me and I had to do it, a lot of the schools that were on the higher end were private schools. So you know, if, you, if you're a smart person and you don't have a lot of money, you can just look at those and go, okay, these are all the schools. Yeah, they're doing great, but we can't go there. So we used to have something in the Twin Cities called the Beat the Odds. Um, list the district or this the local uh, newspaper would print it every year these are the beat the odd schools the schools that with high percentages of kids in poverty high percentage of non-white kids are knocking it out of the park and just like your list nine out of ten of them year after year used to be um, charter schools to the point where unions got the 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 star tribune to stop printing the list Really? Right. <laughs> yeah. They, 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 the they shamed them to death about printing the list because it made the other schools look like losers. And, you know, it just it was, you know, anti-public school to do that. And, and you know, education shouldn't be a competition. All the things that we hear uh, right now in terms of, of talking points. But as a parent that was looking for a school, that list was very helpful. Right. To look at the list and go, OK, tell me which one is at the top. <laughs> Because I'm going to go enroll. I'm going to go and, and, and apply to that school. So people don't want the information to get out. They don't want this show to get out. They don't want the graph that you have right there to get out. And they have a lot of fancy arguments about why, you know, those schools might be doing better. Oh, they don't take enough certain kinds of kids or, you know, they don't have special education like we have special education or whatever. Bottom line, as a parent, I just want that list, man. Yeah. You just showed me a list right now that makes it pretty clear to me what I should do if I move to Oakland. Right. Right. And, and bro, I mean, this is just and again, y'all know me. I don't care. I went to nothing but traditional schools. I love Oakland. I want to see all those schools doing well. Like it really and it doesn't matter to most parents. They just want the best option for their kids. But like if people trying to suppress that information and data like in your city, like you talked about, man, that's a problem. So for parents listening, you get to ask these questions. It is a totally OK question for you to ask. Hey, how much live instruction are we getting versus other schools? Like what is what? What's the what's the average? You know what I mean? And I think that that's just really important. But. We got some experts today, man. Bro, yeah, go ahead, brother. Real quick, before you, before you even get there, bro. You know when you first put that list up, I was, I was like, damn. I hope we see some traditional public schools because mm-hmm. I wanted to be, I wanted to get on my soapbox and be like, yo, we we root for all schools Absolutely. and not just and not, and not just uh, charter schools or private schools or whatever. Like you know, whatever school is doing well, you know, we want to put that school on a pedestal. And so to not see. Uh, a lot of traditional public schools that are like doing the work and getting folks uh, ready for college through A through G. It was a little disheartening, bro. I'm not even going to lie. But this is what's really important about this list. The, the, I'm glad that you pulled it the way that you did, because this to me is very powerful in this one way. If you go to great schools, um, mm-hmm. the, the website to look for the best schools in any city and you don't put any filters on, there will be schools that rise to the top. And then you put the filter on. But yeah, with a certain number of black kids, like 50% black kids or 50% of poverty. Now all of a sudden the schools change. 
Mm -hmm. Right. The district has no problem with you promoting the best schools in the district. So long as you're not putting that filter on it, like the filter with. Yeah. But who's doing good with black kids or kids of color? That's when they get mad because you could go to any city and find a very high performing public school district school. Right. That has no black children in it. You just gave Corey and Neil that next book. (laughs) (laughs) that's a great segue now i know Corey because of you chris i know Corey because of you chris and 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 ray i want you to introduce neil but chris can you do us the honor of 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 introducing uh one Corey deangelis who is uh currently in forbes and got books and all kind of great stuff happening in his life so uh, Corey DeAngelis is an award winning um, researcher when it comes to school choice and other education issues with a Ph.D. from the University of Arkansas from a very seasoned program. He graduated early out of that program in a short shortened number of years versus what most people do. He's won 30 under 30. This cat is hot. This dude is hot, man. (laughs) When you talk about uh, um, school choice online, we used to get beat up a lot by people with PhDs. Oh, you just don't do the research. You don't know what you're talking about. Blah, 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 blah. And enter Corey DeAngelis like Iron Man. Boom! Dropping out of the sky with all these research studies. His studies go beyond what we would normally look forward to, beyond test scores. It also goes through, like, how do people do later in life when they have school choice? How do they do in terms of crime and in terms of uh, uh, home ownership and 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 how they you know civic outcomes and everything else. So this is your dude. This is your dude. This is our new superpower because younger generation coming up, man. Them old PhDs, we got to dust them off. I love it when he jumps into my Twitter feed too because I get beat up by PhDs all the time. It's nice to have somebody with some vigor. So so Corey, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for the kind introduction. It's good to be here with you guys. Man, right, thank man. you so much for being here, Corey. Uh, before we jump into you and have you, because I know you were listening backstage around this data, man. Um, uh, I, I, you know, so we, 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 I had this topic, and I was like, oh, Corey got his book out. I saw uh, Ray with the, um, with the book, and I was like, yo, let's come on. And Ray was like, hey, he got a homie. He, they wrote this together. You got to have homie on. So I'm a, so Ray, why don't you bring our, our, our other guest in, brother? Sure. Uh, Neil McCluskey is the director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Uh, he's the author of the book, uh, Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education, and is co-editor of several volumes, including School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight of Education Freedom, <laughs> and Unprofitable Schooling, Examining Causes of and Fixes for America's Broken Ivory Tower. He, is also, he, he also maintains Cato's Public School Battle Map, an interactive database of schools and in identity-based conflicts in public schools. He is on the editorial board of Journal of School Choice and editorial advise, advisory board of The Line, a journal promoting civil discourse in K-12 policy debates. His writings have appeared in such publications as The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and Forbes, and he has appeared on uh, numerous television and radio programs. McCluskey holds an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, where he double majored in government and English. As a overachiever, overachiever, has, has a master's degree in public science from Rutgers University, Newark. So he was, in, or he was, in, he was in urban land. I love it, and a PhD uh, in public policy from uh, George Mason University. And so I think one of the things that uh, that folks don't get when we talk about Neil and Corey, they're doctors, man. These are PhDs out here in these streets talking stats, and you, you guys are quants. So who don't act like it? Who don't act right. like it though? Act like normal, have- normal. 
Yeah, they act like yes. regular people. Not uh, none of the you know. Corey, Corey is the quant. Uh, I can read a statistic usually wrong, but Corey is the quant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll take I'll take the nerd hat. Thanks. <laughs> so Corey and Neil, thank you both so much for being with us, man, and thank you for taking out that time and. I'm glad y'all decided to come on. It's funny. As soon as I published it, right, I, I got all, Corey, all of your, all of your trolls came for me directly. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you work for the Democratic Party. How do you have? Oh, no. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's like, we, well, you know, we're going we gonna to let that brother have his space. So, Corey and Neil, uh, we'll get to the book uh, a little bit later, and, and, and I can't wait to read it. But what is your reaction to the, what we just showed? I have a few few reactions. One, I don't think it's because of money. Uh, my latest study on this out of the University of Arkansas, Pat Wolf, uh, Patrick Wolf over there, uh, using 2018 data in Oakland, we found that the, the traditional public schools got about $19,000 per kid, whereas the Oakland charter schools only got about $13,000 per kid, about 30% less. So I don't think it's a funding issue. I think it's more about incentives. The charter schools have to attract their customers, and they know if they don't do a good job, that families can walk with their feet. They can they can they can vote with their feet and take their money, their children's education dollars elsewhere. So the charter schools have really strong incentives to get it right. Um, so I think that explains a lot of this. And I also want to point out that this I'm, we're not only seeing this here in Oakland. I think we're seeing this nationwide as well. Education Next just did a survey on this, asking families how they felt about the. Um, the, the services that they were getting out of their charter schools, traditional schools and uh, private schools and the families who had children in charter schools and private schools were over 50 percent more satisfied with the instruction as opposed to the parents with children in the traditional public schools. So I think mm -hmm. we're seeing that nationwide. We're seeing that in Oakland. But I mean, another thing that's important to know is even if the averages showed that the charter schools were doing a little less on average, you would still want to be an advocate for family choice because uh, it's all about the match between the individual student and their school. That could be a traditional school. I think everybody on this call is OK with families going to a, a district school that works for them. Absolutely. It's not just one size fit all charter versus private versus district. I think we're all for choice rather than advocating for one particular system over another. That's what's yeah. Up. yeah. I mean, we do want a different system. We want a system of school choice. What we don't really care that much about is what you choose, as long as you're able to choose what you think is best for your child. So we've got to change the system. But one of the things I, that's pretty clear when you look at the data you were presenting was, if you're just talking about hours of in-person instruction, that shouldn't really be affected by how much money you have. This is clearly a matter of incentives. Are you a school that needs to satisfy families in order to stay in business and to do well? Um, uh, we, uh, Corey and I did something uh, for Cato. There's a whole series of stuff called Pandemics and Policy. Uh, and we did one that Corey was, I think, citing Education Next. We have Education Next and other data that shows clearly from the beginning of lockdowns on, um, 
private schools and charter schools, the parents found them much more responsive, much more likely to provide meaningful you know, instruction. Even when they were all locked down, the private schools and the charter schools provided more sort of original curricular material as opposed to you know, giving you some worksheets to do to just sort of stay in place. And so this is not just an Oakland thing. This is nationwide. And I should say, uh, I don't want to plug too many Cato things, but it's all I really know. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I have a tracker of private schools that have gone out of business uh, because of some COVID connection. And I thought it was going to be catastrophic. So far, we've got about 121 schools that went out of business, mainly because the lockdowns made it really hard to get the revenue they needed. But that's a really important point is private schools and charter schools have to strive to satisfy parents, or in many cases, they really will go out of business. So you see many more private schools, charter schools, providing in-person education or providing both choices. You can either get in-person or online, depending on what you think is best for your family. Much more those sectors, the chosen sectors are doing that because the incentives are clear. If they don't do it, many of them cease to exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it looks like we have our other guy back here. How you doing, Sharif? Can you hear us, good brother? I can hear y'all. Hopefully, y'all can hear me. We, we can. can hear you now. Okay. We can. Cool. Well, well, welcome. Thank you welcome. for joining us, sir. <laughs> hey, um, Neil, Corey, good to see you. Hey, good to <laughs> see you. So, Sharif, just to bring you into the conversation, and folks that's listening, if you're listening right now and you're enjoying, we need you to like, we need you to share, okay? is That's the best way we can get this out. Today's episode is about equipping our parents so they know how to go get these educational receipts, because a lot of parents don't think they can ask or, or do anything during COVID, right? But, like, now nah, quality is still happening for some people, and that means disparities are still happening for some people. So, Sharif, I wanted to give you, um, I don't know if you got a chance to see the data that we were talking about. But basically what we saw was charter schools in Oakland, uh, much like the, around the country, are offering more um, live instruction during COVID uh, than a lot of the traditional schools. And a big reason, uh, especially in California, was because of the ways that the union had negotiated exactly how much time they had to spend teaching. So we just wanted uh, to get your thoughts and bring you into the convo. Yeah, I mean, my, my first thing would be, you know, one, apologies for being late, but but two, where do the parents fit in? You know, I, I would imagine that the schools that respond to families, the schools that, you know, where families are saying this is what we want in person or more instruction or this type of support, um, the more responsive schools are, whatever the sector is, um, the better that they're going to be. And I think you see that in in Oakland. Folks are student-centered. And when you see that, when you see schools doing that consistently, you're going to have different results than, than those that put the adults uh, first. Mm, that's what's up, man. So, again, uh, Ray and Chris, I definitely want to make sure I'm not ho- hogging the mic. But the one thing I do want to ask our experts, we got a lot of people out there that, like I said, may be confused about how to advocate or what questions to ask or whatnot. Uh, Neil and Corey, can you offer... Uh, and parents and people listening, get your notepad ready, right? Can you offer some suggestions uh, that for ways that advocates and parents can check on the progress and quality that their kids are getting during COVID? Yeah, well, I'll go first in that COVID to some extent, especially during the lockdowns, but a lot of places are still locked down, makes it much easier actually for parents to see what their schools are doing than they could see before. When the kids were just in a building, it was hard to get in and observe your kids 
while they were in class. Of course, the teacher would know they were being observed. And that always, get, if you're observing somebody, that has an effect on them. But when it's online, you can actually just pop in your kid's room. Now, we know some school districts try to say, don't do that because you might give out somebody secret information. But you just do that. You go in, see what they're learning, sit on in a class. Now is your chance to get that transparency. So it's especially easy with COVID. Um, but I think, you know, when we go back to schooling, which is hopefully soon where people are back in buildings, parents now, first of all, have to say, let me into the building. Let me see what's happening. Let me look through the door, whatever it is. But this shouldn't be something that's blocked off from parents. It's your kids. You pay for those schools. You should have access to them. But the the policy lever that you're going to have to have, I think, in order to have, you know, real power to make schools do this, is you're going to have to have more of that choice where you can say, you either make what's going on here transparent to me, or I take my child and the money to educate them somewhere else. Yeah, and I, I would add, I think Neil's absolutely correct that um, people are getting to see a lot more about what's going on in the classroom, whether they're uh, learning a lot in the classroom or not at this time. But then also, I think I just want to point out one of the only silver linings that I see here is that families are in this situation and COVID has really put a spotlight on the power imbalance between the producers of education, that is the schools themselves, mm -hmm. And the consumers of the, the educational services, the students and their families, and the families are seeing that they're getting a, the short end of the stick. They're getting a real bad deal, and they're waking up to that fact. Um, it's one thing for the child to not get an adequate education year after year, but it's another conversation altogether for a traditional public school to – failed to provide an adequate education, and then also to not even reopen their doors for business for the families who prefer in-person instruction or a certain type of hybrid or remote learning. And families are seeing that the, the schools are keeping their doors closed and that all, all of their children's education dollars are getting to stay in the building, even if they're pulling their kids out and homeschooling their children, or if they want to send their kid to a charter school. In places like California, I'm pretty sure they signed a bill, I think it was Senate Bill 98, that prevented the money from following the child to particular charter schools uh, during the lockdown. And that was all to protect the establishment and to protect the monopoly at the expense of individual families. And so I think that's why we're seeing this year, the two latest national polls that I've seen on this support for private school choice and school choice in general has really uh, seen an uptick. The uh, Real Clear Opinion Research poll found a 10 percentage point jump in support for uh, private school choice initiatives. And then another um, uh, EdChoice poll found that 86% of families now support things called education savings accounts, or what I like to call having the money follow the child or funding students as opposed to the institutions. Man, thank y'all so much. Now, Chris, mm. Reed, uh, when Ray comes back, oh, there goes Ray. There he is. Uh, yeah. Chris, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let my eight black hands brothers go ahead and jump in. So, I mean, I, thank y'all for appeasing me and letting me, because when I gave this talk, I was just like, man, our parents, they were just so moved and they just didn't know, right? And they just didn't know that they had some power. So, you know, I want to hear from my eight black hands brothers around this. Let's keep this conversation going. Like what advice or how, how, how should our communities be responding to this type of uh, data? 
I mean, I would ask just of our researchers that since we have them. So for, for first of all, two things. Like first thing is imagine being a Spotify customer and having Spotify go out of business and say, OK, we're out of business. And the next month after they're out of business and you're trying to switch to Apple Music, you get a Spotify charge on your bank account and you call them and you're like, wait a second, <laughs> you guys are out of business. Why are you charging me? And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to keep doing that for life. <laughs> right. <laughs> like <laughs> we realize now you didn't set up a cover band in your living room and you've got them playing cover tunes and they're not very good, but they're still going to charge you from Spotify. Right. That's absurd. It's an absurd example. But when you start thinking through who does the money belong to? It belongs to the child. That's why they call it per pupil. It's like a per pupil allotment. And a parent has pupils. Schools don't have kids. Parents yep. have kids, right? So the parent should be the president of the per pupil, right? They should be the one who says, okay, Spotify, you are out of business right now. I'm going to go to Tidal or I'm going to go to Apple Music, but the song will continue to play, right? The tune will go on, right? But what, what, what public schools attempt to do to you, what, what state-run schools attempt to do is cut off every avenue, cut off every avenue for the parent to be the president of the per pupil, for you to have that level of um, involvement. Now, they want you to be involved as a parent. They want you to be involved when it comes time to um, fight for better teacher contracts, to fight for raises, to do red for ed stuff, to get more money into public education, but to get more money into public education, not get more money into your hands in your pocket so you can determine for your kid what type of education they should get. That's just my vent and my rant trying to put this into perspective I, for people listening. Um, but I would love to know from our researchers uh, and Corey, I think you're going to say something else. But, you know, I would love to know if you see a difference between states like California and a state like Florida, where they have vastly different philosophies about choice. Yep, there is differences between states. But I also want to I want to point out real quick that I think that is how you need to center every single conversation about school choice, about who does the money actually belong to? Does it belong to an institution in the system? Does it belong to a government run residentially assigned school or does it belong to the student and the family to decide where that money is actually allocated? So when you hear like the arguments from the teachers unions, which are included in the school choice in this book, one of the biggest ones is that school choice or charter schools defunds the public schools. First of all, charter schools are public schools. But second of all, school choice doesn't defund public schools. The public schools defund the families. School choice initiatives just return that money to the hands of the rightful owners which happen to be the families who can take it back to the public school or traditional school if they want, but they should also be able to take it to a private school or a charter school or a homeschool option. So all of the arguments on the other side fall apart when you realize that the money doesn't belong to the system. It belongs to the students, especially when you start pointing out things like Pell Grants and pre-K programs, which usually have the money go to the family or the student, not a residentially assigned government run institution. It goes to the people who can then take the money to an educational provider of their choosing. Same thing with food stamps and Medicaid and uh, so many other taxpayer-funded initiatives. Um, but to the, to the real question that you asked really quickly, I did a study linking teachers' union influence to the likelihood of reopening schools in person this year. And places that had much stronger teachers' unions, like California, for example, only about 4% of the, the uh, uh, school districts in the database that I was looking at provided by Education Week were open for full-time in-person instruction, but in places like Florida, about 20 times that amount, uh, or about uh, yeah, tw uh, 20 times that amount were open for in-person instruction. 
about 80% of the districts in Florida, a place that has much weaker teachers unions. And that relationship held even after controlling for so many different demographic characteristics in the county and also uh, the coronavirus risk in the county as well. So places with stronger unions, less likely to provide that in-person instruction at, at this time. And, and, and also word. just on that, just one question. So that that's the presence of teachers union, but also the presence. Did you find anything around the state laws attitude about choice? So like the laws yeah, are yeah. stronger for choice in Florida than they are in California. No, we didn't. We didn't look at that in particular, but it is the case that um, there is more access to private school choice programs. I think Florida has about five of these different programs and a, a large degree of charter schools as well. So there's a lot of choice for families in Florida. There's statewide open enrollment among different district run schools. And yes, they were more likely to open for in-person instruction. But I also do want to add as well. Um, that I, I don't particularly think that one particular type of instruction is better or, or in, in for all families or others. I think it's um, people should just have the choice whether they want in-person versus remote versus hybrid. Uh, I think the family should have that decision. That's a very good argument to fund the students instead of the system so that the families can sort to the environment that works best for their their own children. Yeah. Can I just throw uh, one thing in here that's about very basic terminology that I always get wrong. Everybody gets wrong. We have a problem because of how the discussion of education has worked for a long time. But we have to draw a very clear distinction between public schooling and public education because we say that the money is for the child. And that's true to an extent, a very large extent. But the argument is that when we set up this system where in one way or another, we make sure everybody can access education because we say it's good for society overall. And of course, it is good for society if we have educated people. The problem is we say public education is synonymous with public schools. So people think, well, public education means we fund government established and run schools, and that's where everybody goes, as opposed to public education, where we make sure that everybody can access a good school, they can get the education that's beneficial for them and for society. But we don't say where that is. We say they choose what is best for them. And so we've got to constantly, and I forget it all the time, make this distinction. Public education is not the same thing as public schooling. Public schooling is one way to get public education, but public education is about educating the public and by far the better way to do that. And the better way to do it in a country where we're based in liberty and equality is let people choose the school they think is best for them. Mm. That makes perfect sense, bro. And thank you for that, uh, that, that putting that so eloquently. Um, my takeaway from this is very simple. Uh, families are losing. Unions are winning. But I do want to put this caveat for teachers because it's not all teachers. Not all teachers are to blame. So I want to give a shout out to the teachers that have spoken up against the union and that want to be in classrooms with their kids, right? Because there's a lot of them. But as Corey said, when you're in a, a, a school district that is heavily dominated by your union, you do what the union says and not necessarily what you want to do. So for those that have expressed that conviction to want to be in classrooms with their kids, shout out to you, Godspeed. 
Well, and the unions haven't really done a, a lot of a whole lot of good for individual teachers. So you can be critical of unions, teachers unions, but be very supportive of teachers. That's two different That's, things. And I mean, just look at how we've poured more and more money into the traditional system in the U.S. and how the teachers aren't really seeing a lot of it. Uh, between 1992 and 2014, as Ben Scaffity has documented from Kennesaw State University, we've increased the per pupil expenditures in real terms by about 27%, but teacher salaries over that same time period actually dropped by 2%. And I think it's because the traditional monopoly doesn't have a particularly strong incentive to spend the money wisely. And the most the, the best way to, to allocate those resources would be towards the classroom, towards the most important resource, which happens to be the teachers. And there are five studies that I know of on this topic that find that when you introduce charter school or private school competition into the area, the traditional public schools actually start to pay their teachers more. So in response to this competition, the districts start to realize that, well, we better start to allocate our resources a little bit more efficiently or we're going to lose our talent and we're also going to lose our customers. So they start to pour more of the resources back into the classroom. And all five of the studies that I've seen on this topic find higher salaries for teachers. So teachers should be very happy and supportive about uh, um, educational op options and labor market competition. And Corey, let me even add into that, right? The other thing that, they, that, that happens when you introduce charter school systems into a traditional school uh, with traditional school competition is traditional schools tend to fire and get rid of uh, black and brown educators of color, especially males. And the people that tend to hire those folks to give them opportunities tend to be charter schools and private schools. I shared a study a while back with the fellas like long, long ago before we were even doing this piece. Right. Like they became a they became a place for educators of color uh, who couldn't get to the end of their second year in the traditional system. Uh, Sharif, uh, I want to go ahead and pull you in before I show one more set of receipts because y'all brought up a few things and I, and I want to make it really plain for our parents. So any any additional thoughts from you, Reef, before we, uh, we, we transition? I mean, I would definitely, I appreciated the, the uh, delineation between, you know, public education and public schooling. Uh, we talk a lot on this show about the difference between schooling and learning um, and, and how that, that if we look at the education of a child, education, uh, educated citizenry, then we're not just looking at a specific one type of school that where, you know, you know, or you just look at a district, you're looking at all the apparatus around it. What is the entire educational ecosystem that can support the education of these citizens? Right. And, and everything that you're talking about just reminds me, like, you know, there's so many folks that talk about, you know, oh, we need to, to spur the economy. We need to do this. We need to be the 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 best economy in the world. The only way that you get there is that you have the highest level of education of the citizens, right? The, the more your citizens are educated across all spheres, across all races and classes, then you are going to dominate the economic, uh, you know, boom of, of the, the globe. But it's such short sightedness that people can't understand like, OK, let's let's make sure that we're doing this right. And the second piece that, Corey, you talk about is just this misalignment. You know, I, I think, you know, when you look at, at schools and, and Research for Action did a, a study a while ago in Philadelphia and it looked at like turnaround schools did better than traditional systems, even if it was. Uh, a district turnaround school where they relax some of the, the um, strangulation that unions may have had in the building. 
they they tried to do more student centered and teacher supportive uh, things, and they saw a difference. And if it was uh, a Renaissance charter, then it significantly surpassed uh, the other turnaround efforts. And there are reasons for that. And one of them is just alignment. Like, what's your vision? Where are the resources going? How is the coaching set up? What's the observational feedback? And then it generates outcomes. You know, I talk about Shoemaker a lot. It's like the same kids, same neighborhood, you know, who had, you know, for generations tried to find every exit, you know, to that uh, to that building. And then same kids, different adults, different expectations and wildly different results. And there's no excuse that that couldn't happen anywhere and everywhere. Thank you for that, Reef. And just because of what you all were talking about, I wanted to just show this last thing because when we, we talking about receipts and I know sometimes we talk about big ideas and today we wanted to crystallize just ha- what's happening to parents uh, and what's happening to students. So in California, we have equal, like under like Prop 39, students are supposed to get access to buildings, okay? We have 15,000 open seats in Oakland. And every time charter schools try to get some of those seats, there's like an organized protest or whatnot. And since you talk about per student and what people pay, charter schools have to pay an additional 500 to $2,000 per student for private facilities. And we got Ms. Maya in the comments right now who can probably speak on this because she runs one of the most successful charter networks in the city. The other thing is that these people will fight you when you try to do a Prop 39, but here's the worst thing, and then I'll, I'll shut up and move us on. Charter schools in Oakland have lost $88 million in public facility grants and are being closed because people are like fighting them every step of the way when they're just trying to get buildings to either expand their school or open it. But y'all need to know what AB 1505 is in California. And you need to know because other places, other states are going to try to follow California's lead on this. When sentiments change, AB 1505 makes it more difficult for charter schools to open, meaning that if you want to open a charter school or you want to expand it, it has to meet this dashboard of requirements from the state that traditional schools don't have to meet or and are never held accountable to. So just so you know, every five years, charter schools come under review. Traditional schools do not. So there are people, like I said, that have actively voted against this. They ran on it to end up voting on it. Uh, and, and we had three out of four seats win uh, with largely them running against charter schools. I'm done. I just wanted to add some more receipts because a lot of times I think we say stuff, but people don't really see how their schools are under attack. But this is where I think like Neil and, and Corey, their work is important is because like AB 1505 was passed with a public narrative that was built on myths. Many myths, mm-hmm. but they were powerful. They were they were great marketing, um, and you need great marketing because AB fifteen oh five was authored, if I'm not wrong, by one of the representatives in California who has four of the top performing schools for black kids in the state in his district, and they're all charter schools. So at the time that he is actively working against charter schools, his constituents are enjoying several of the state's best schools for kids of color, specifically for black children. Um, And he's still supporting that. But the public narrative is one based on scarcity. Um, These schools take money from, uh, charter schools take money from the district schools. They siphon money away. Um, They don't take all the kids. They they leave behind the most expensive kids and they they cream the best kids into their buildings. Um, they, they, um, uh, They don't play by the same civil rights rules and they have screening processes at the beginning in during enrollment so that 
they so that they don't have to take certain kids and all that. They were making that even as 99, the federal government was signing, signing 99 civil rights settlements with California school districts for for um, civil rights violations at the same time that these people were pushing this narrative that charter schools were somehow an enemy of civil rights. But for our two guests, you wrote a book and on your book, it says myths. <laughs> what right. are some of the myths? Yes. So help me out here, because I, I don't think that our schools, the schools that we care about staying open and getting more more traction, they don't have a problem with the research supporting them. They have a problem with the public narrative that's based on myths. And, and Chris, right so, as they jump into it, I just want to just say for people that want that full training, uh, Chris, Ray, Reef. We put it on our Patreon. So you can go, if you are a Patreon member, you can get that full training that I did with those parents and take those notes and reach out or whatnot. But you got to be a Patreon member. Uh, go to patreon.com slash 8BH. And I only know, I knew about the book because of Ray. So, you know, I think now we can definitely go strong into the book. And I don't know if Ray's read some of it, but to our special guest, please tell us about this book. The myths. Tell us about the myths specifically. <laughs> so well, then, I, I have definitely uh, read some of the book. Uh, shout out to Neil and Corey for sending me the book. And um, uh, I'm, through, I'm through chapter one. What I'll say is this. It's, it's a slow read because it's very interesting stuff. And like this is the first book uh, uh, post me uh, completing chapters one through three of my dissertation that I've read uh, and took notes in. So um, thank you guys for this. Uh, this is this is amazing. And so one of the things that I wanted you guys to talk about as you talked about just like school choice myths is this whole uh, contact theory. Uh, if you can describe like what that is to to to, to our followers, I think they'll I think they'll get a lot out of that. And, and Phil and Phil okay to tell us well. I want y'all to buy the book, but <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead, y'all. It's y'all. The floor is y'all's, man. Uh, like well, let's see, Corey, you want me to give a? I can give a summary. You can give a summary. Uh, then I'm happy to talk about contact theory because that's uh, my chapter. I love to talk about contact theory. Uh, but, <laughs> But maybe we should do an overview. I don't know, Corey, you want to do the overview? Yeah, I'll do a quick uh, 30-second elevator pitch of the book. I mean, uh, I mean, yeah, so School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Education Freedom, uh, co-edited with uh, Neil and myself. Um, But, yeah, we have 12 chapters from 14 different authors in the school choice arena, uh, each covering a different myth. I mean, there's probably a thousand or so myths in the school choice debate. Uh, because there are people that profit from getting your children's education dollars, regardless of how well they meet their needs and regardless of whether they even open their doors for business. Um, so there's lots of myths that float around the debate, but none of them um, are any good. All of them fall down under the slightest bit of scrutiny and uh, slightest bit of logic and, and evidence that we bring to the table. Um, so we uh, make sure we, it's a one-stop shop to uh, combat the myths in the school choice debate that try to prevent you from taking your children's education dollars to the educational provider that works best for them, whether that's a charter school, a private school, a traditional school, or a home-based setting. Um, and well, yeah, Corey, Corey, 30, topple, 000, topple one, one of the myths. Topple I, hit, one of them. I hit one earlier, and I think <laughs> Ben Scaff at Kennesaw did this this myth with uh, Marty Lucan of EdChoice, and it's a myth that uh, traditional public or charter schools steal the money from the district schools. And uh, you, you brought this up a second ago, Chris, but you know it doesn't make, it does doesn't make any sense once you start to realize that the money doesn't belong to the district schools. Mm-hmm. Just imagine if I similarly you heard someone argue that allowing families to choose their grocery store 
defunded uh, Safeway. <laughs> what? If you heard someone say that, you'd be like, dude, you're crazy. What are you talking about? <laughs> Me choosing Walmart doesn't defund Safeway because Safeway doesn't deserve my money if I don't choose to take my money there. Even if I'm using a taxpayer funded initiative like food stamps or some other type of program, everybody kind of understands that the family should have access to those dollars regardless of, uh, should have the, should have the choice rather than uh, being residentially assigned to a particular institution. Just imagine if we did that with food stamps. Everybody would be, think it would be absolutely ridiculous to residentially assign low-income families to a government-run grocery store, regardless of how well it worked for them. That wouldn't make any sense. And I think even if people, even if there are some people who are watching this who aren't, who are opposed to food stamps, most most people aren't, or if they're for or against them, I think everybody understands that if we're going to have those taxpayer dollars allocated, it should go to the families rather than the institution. So that's the biggest myth. And then a related myth is that uh, school choice will harm the kids who are left behind in the public schools. There are about 27 studies on this, 25 to 27 studies find statistically significant positive effects of school choice competition on the, on the students who remain in the traditional public school system. So you don't even have to use a school choice program to benefit from it because school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats through competitive pressures. And then similarly, people, I can keep going and going, but people similarly argue that school choice leads to inequities, but advantaged families already have school choice without these programs. They can already afford to live near the best public schools. They can already afford to pay out of pocket for the best private schools. School choice, funding students directly, allows leads to more equity relative to that status quo because it allows more families to have options. I know I just be, hit be, you know, And before right. we move yeah, on, I just need to make a, um, uh, a note here. Um, Eight Black Hands uh, broadcast doesn't do trolls. We don't do trolls. We don't do anonymous uh, accounts uh, in the comments. Uh, all of our commenters and people in the comments need to be real, actual people. So you will be banned from the stream uh, if you are just here as a troll and you're using a fake profile. So if you find yourself with the band tag, that's why. Uh, moving on, folks. I'm sorry. I just had to make that, yeah. that quick note there. No, that's good. Um, you didn't have to make that quick note. Yeah, no, I did because we because our comments are looking a little silly with the with one or two individuals that I'm known getting, for. They, they, they've been in my for, 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 for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah to, and they love it. They, you know, see, th this is what this is what Neil and and, and Corey bring to your house, man. They they, they, <laughs> they 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 bring dedicated opposition. But Neil, I wanted you to to continue with the myths because this is the powerful part to me. Sure. So um, uh, I think Ray. Somebody asked me. I think it was Ray asked about contact theory which is like my favorite theory to ever talk about and nobody's favorite theory to ever hear about, but I'm going to keep doing it because uh, it's kind of obscure. But one of the biggest myths, and I think it's, you know, we, we talk about in this book, some people perpetuate myths. We think they actually know their myths and they're doing it because they want to defeat school choice for reasons that may not be really with the best interest of kids in mind. But there are also a lot of myths that make intuitive sense to people. You know, even the, the idea that uh, that school choice siphons money, at first people think, well, that kind of makes sense. And so they need to understand why that's not the case. And the book we're hoping is something you sort of keep on your desk as a reference. And when one of these myths pops up, you can quickly turn that chapter and get that information. One of the myths, the myth that drives me the most nuts 
But it's understandable. People are afraid that school choice will balkanize society. The idea is if we allow people to choose school, they're going to go off in their own separate enclaves. And not only will they be kind of separate, but because they're separate, they'll kind of be at war with each other, which mm. doesn't always make intuitive sense. But you can certainly understand why people think we'll balkanize, that we'll go off with people just like ourselves. The first thing to understand is we're already doing that to a very large mm. extent in public schools. And the basic idea of contact theory is, look, if you want to get people together to build bridges between different groups, could be race, could be religion, could be socioeconomic, lots of different groups. Contact theory most basically says, look, you got to get them together. People actually have to meet people who are different from themselves to learn that they're not as different as they think. But Gordon Alport, the guy who's the biggest name for this, said, but there's some provisos to that. You can't just push people together and say, now, fight over the one piece of bread so that one of you won't starve. That makes you enemies and that <laughs> rips you apart even further. He said mm -hmm. if, if contact's going to work, it's got to be contact that's voluntary and that's for something that's mutually beneficial that different people or people in different groups all want and that they hopefully will work together and they'll recognize common humanity. And when you apply that to the education system, the way you supply schools that offer something special that bring people in different groups together is private schooling. The idea of public schooling, common schools, what they were called was, they're all supposed to be kind of the same, offering the same thing. They are common. But if that's the case, there's nothing to really draw people of different groups together. Private schools offer a whole lot, or charter schools. Charter schools, the same thing, only they can't offer religion. Religion is important. But they offer specialties that bring people together, bring them together voluntarily, and then kind of build a new identity, an identity that can cross over race or religion or wealth. And so we have really, I think it's three or four chapters in here that deal with balkanization issues. I write one about how school choice can actually be within education the key to bringing us together because you can have schools that specialize and build new identities that overcome the divisions we face. Uh, Phil Magnus writes about there's always an attack on school choice that it was used by segregationists, absolutely true, after Brown v. Board, but the, the history is much deeper than that. Often school choice was for groups who were not in the majority to get the education they wanted. You can go back to the 1840s, Roman Catholics were the most famous example of this, saying, please, let us take money to schools that don't teach that we're bad. Um, so he talks about the history. And then Pat Wolf, I talked a little bit about public education. It's supposed to be about an educated society, not just students. He talks about how private schools, the research overwhelmingly shows that private schools do a better job of creating tolerant and knowledgeable citizens, what we thought we wanted common schools for. And it's likely because those schools, and this is after controlling for lots of socioeconomic uh, factors, so that we're comparing like people. Um, and it's probably because if you choose a private school, you choose, you select their curriculum. So their curriculum, and he didn't look at charter schools in our chapter, but he's done that too. They select a, a curriculum that you agree with. So you don't have to fight with other people who may not agree on how you teach about the electoral college or something like that. And then you can have a rigorous curriculum okay. that prepares people well. When you have a public school that you're just assigned to based on address, 
And especially when a curriculum is set at the state level, everybody battles. And what we've seen in many areas is you just teach at lowest common denominator so nobody gets mad. We saw it's best laid out when you talk about evolution and creationism, but the same thing is likely happening in civics and forming citizens. So school choice in that regard helps bring us together as well. Man, uh, first off, thank y'all just so much. And as we get into the close to wrap, I'm we're gonna throw it back to to, to Neil and Corey just to kind of what do you want us to take away from that piece if y'all have final thoughts. But I just want to say one thing about all this stuff. Right now, you are seeing so many different political views in one place having a conversation. You're seeing so many different etymologies around what we believe and how we go about things. But the one thing that everybody on this episode and on this talk can agree on is that we should be centering young people. We should be centering people in education. And the most offensive thing that I've heard and that I continue to hear, and I will go, I will die on this hill. It is so offensive to tell people that they still in something that belongs to them. You know how arrogant, how egregious and how insulting that is. I can't steal what's mine. That's like mm-hmm. saying, because I'm happy, I'm still enjoy from everybody else. You sound stupid. I'm sorry. It's just because they think that we're dumb, man. And I'm tired of these people. You shouldn't die on that hill, bro. You should live on that hill. Just, you shouldn't I'm, die on that hill at all. You should just I live on that hill. There. Make them mad. But I will live there because we got yeah. people in here. We, we, we don't just have researchers. We got people in here like Ray and Maya that run systems, and that's actually killing it. You know what I'm saying? And they black, and they killing it for black people. Like, I want all these schools to be thriving. But anyway, let me throw it back to Neil and to um, and, and to Corey. Just let it, give us your final thoughts on this piece. Um, then we can roll into the brother's final thoughts. And and if in part of your final thoughts, can you just um, answer a question for me that is there any place in the country where homeschooling, we have more black parents who are deciding to homeschool. Have you seen any instances where the money that would have been allocated to them mm-hmm. if they went inside of a building and they're saying, I'm going to uh, educate my child at home. Do you see any instances where that money goes to them to use to homeschool? Yeah, there's a couple of uh, examples of that that I know of off the top of my head. There's California has some strange setup to where if you're enrolled in a particular type of virtual charter school, you can get about $3,000 for home education expenses. This is something I just learned about in the past year, and I think it's been going on for a while now. But if you if you Google California homeschool funding, you'll find, you'll find what I'm talking about. Uh, but you do have to be enrolled in the virtual charter school, which some homeschooling advocates will say, ah, that's not true homeschooling, but it's, it's pretty close. And you, you get about, I believe about $3,000 per year in Alaska. They have something similar. Not a lot of people live in Alaska, but they do have a similar program where I think they have about 20 or 30 different of these types of, uh, it's called the Alaska homeschool allotment. If you want to just Google mm-hmm. that, if you live in Alaska, most people watching this probably don't live in Alaska. And then, and then lastly, there are, I think five States with things called education savings accounts, but they are all, uh, prioritized for students with special needs. So I think this is Tennessee, uh, Florida, and, and a few other States have education savings accounts where the money falls the child to a savings account. You could use it for private school tuition if you want, but you could also use it for home education expenses, expenses, and even uh, special needs therapies. But those are pretty small programs. Um, uh, but that's about it that I know of on that topic. And if, unless Neil has another uh, example, I'd like to, someone in the comments asked something about, you know, well, well, what about Pell Grants, for example? 
And I, I think this is the example I like to bring up so much because it's it's interesting. And when I first learned about this, that yeah, there, no one no one you know says these things about Pell grants and pre code programs. They don't say that Pell grants are stealing money from the community college. They don't say that. Uh, pre-K programs are stealing money from uh, the nearby public provider of the pre-K program because you can use it at private providers. Um, and I, I, at first, I wasn't really understanding what, why is there this disconnect? What's, why is there a logical in, uh, cons- inconsistency here? And I think the only reason here is because with things like higher education and pre-K, uh, the norm is that you already have a high degree of choice. Same thing with the rest, with the grocery store industry and a whole bunch of these other industries with programs funding the individual directly. But when it comes to the in-between years, between pre-K and higher education, K through 12, there's a difference in a power dynamic in that the status quo is that the money goes to a particular institution when it comes to K through 12, but not when it comes to these other uh, years in the educational environment. And so you get a special interest that fights really hard against you being able to take your children's education dollars to another location because they get your money either way. Of course, they're going to fight to keep that situation. So I think this is the reason for this disconnect. I think everybody should be consistent regardless of the power structure and uh, support funding individuals directly uh, if the money is going to be allocated, no matter what type of industry we're talking about, no matter what level of uh, education we're talking about. So that's one thing I wanted to kind of end on and, and, and point out because it's something that I've thought about a lot. And I mean, just this year in South Carolina, for example, uh, the governor wanted to take some of the CARES Act fund or the GEAR funding and use it for school choice programs. And then it got challenged in the Supreme Court, Supreme Court. And uh, there are other uh, Supreme Court challenges at the state level uh, against school choice programs. But then the same states don't take that challenge and that same energy when it comes to pre-K programs, because the constitutional challenge is that you can't have the public dollars going to the private educational institutions. Well, you had that going on with pre-K in South Carolina and in places like Michigan that have a Blaine Amendment. Why is that not an issue? And it's because you don't have a entrenched special interest that fights against uh, those types of programs. Can I add one thing real fast? In the book, there's a great chapter on the constitutionality issue because it's a total myth at this point that you shouldn't be able, that's unconstitutional to take government money to a private school. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this, this is your final thought, so you, you can go ahead and, and, and take oh. us home with your final thoughts for being on the show. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that's a good final thought is, there, <laughs> I mean, there are 12 great chapters in here. And again, like I said, the goal here is for this book to be something you keep at your desk and you're ready to deal with all the myths that you encounter. Um, and I should also thank all of our contributors. We have lots of great contributors. Uh, Corey and I, uh, we're kind of getting the credit, but we're just mere editors. And so there are lots of there are several great authors in here. Um, but the ultimate point of school choice myths is it just knocks down 12 myths that say somehow it is better to provide education by not giving choice than it is to deliver education where people can choose 
where educators are free to educate as they see fit. And the way that they get business is they have to attract people who want that education for themselves. So this is ultimately a book that says a free society and a, a free education system that's based on a free society is going to give you better outcomes. And the outcomes that we all want, whether it's academic or civic, going to give you better outcomes than if we have this model where everybody is assigned to a school based on their home address. Thank you so much for that. And and, and thank you so much for being here. And um, we're about to roll into our final thoughts. And, and Reef, I want to start with you just because I feel like you are just always super thoughtful around this stuff and, and just listening today. Why don't you kick us off with our final thoughts for this episode, good brother? Yeah, no, first of all, thank you all for, for coming. Always appreciate, you know, um, not just following you all on Twitter. I know, uh, but Corey, we shared a stage earlier this summer, uh, you know, and, and just always enjoy, you know, um, listening to you and looking forward to checking out the book. <laughs> You know, everybody touched on this. I think, you know, in America, unfortunately, you know, children in particular uh, tend to get, you know, what their parents can afford, you know, and that's quality across the board, including schools uh, choice as it's inherently uh, the default for those with uh, affluence and influence. And no matter what many of them say, they are uh, their hearts are hardened against uh, children and families who don't have that access, you know, and what I would caution people is instead of fighting, you know, uh, tooth and nails against uh, parents making choices for their children, what you ought to be fighting tooth and nail for is that there's a lot of quality educational opportunities, particularly from the ones that that families are are leaving, you know, um, those institutions, those schools, uh, that's that's where most of the focus needs to be as to why and what's happening and what needs to be done to improve it immediately, not generations later, immediately. Uh, thank you for that, Reef. Uh, Chris, I want to come to you next. And the reason why, like I said, I think you just one of the most staunch uh, advocates and activists in this space and in this work, and 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 in my every, I know all of y'all are parents, but to me, you represent something a little different for the parent that's going through this over what you said over the last three decades of parenting th- throughout this stuff. So, what's your first time he says that? I feel old as hell. Saying it like that, I mean, what's your final thoughts as you know, not just the 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 you know for the work you do, but just who you are and, and what you've seen in this work. Um, well, first of all, let me say thank you to uh, Corey and Neil for joining us. Corey is like the ultimate uh, multi-purpose school choice warrior in social media. And Neil, I've never seen anybody be more stately and resist falling into ad hominem while still standing strong on the points that we care about in, in uh, school choice. So it's good to have people that you can stand with on these things because we're up against a very mighty um, um, opposition. Um, and the, the opposition is built on lies. They're, they're built on myths and lies and not logic or reason. And we're losing sometimes when we don't need to lose because they're basing them on the, on all the, the things that turn the public against school choice, but not anything that does good for kids. And our problem is we allow people to center the conversation on everything but kids. Um, 
by international, like the Geneva, Geneva Convention, we have a human right to education determined by the parents. It's, it's actually written in as a human right to be able to determine how our kids are educated. We shouldn't have anything called school choice. There's no such thing. There's just parenting. <laughs> There's parent sovereignty is what there is. It's just parenting, right? So my ability to be the president of when, where, how, and what my kid will learn is an inalienable right that I have to fight for every day. And it's ridiculous that in 2020, I do still have to fight for it, but I do, right? States don't have kids. Schools don't have kids. Schools aren't three decades into raising my children. <laughs> I'm three decades into, into raising my kids and my family, and I'm on the hook for making it happen. And I'm on the hook for them becoming responsible citizens that don't cost the state any money after they become adults. But you can't tie my hands by telling me I don't get to, to choose what, where, when, and how they will learn. That's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. But that is the battle that we're having. But that's not really the sum total of the bat battle. For If we're really being clinical about our language and precise... We're not fighting over choice. We're fighting over the public dollars that are allocated to educate our individual children. And what we are what we are up against are a group of people that are say you can do whatever you want with the kid. You can move them from left to right or up or down just as long as their per pupil money stays in our pocket. Right. That's the argument that, that we're facing against. So let me um, let me just end by saying we have a moral obligation to keep fighting and to stand together, but to realize that we're not fighting for the dollars or for law changes or whatever. We're, we're fighting for parental sovereignty. Just the very basic idea that when you have a child and you hold that baby in your hand and you realize that you are responsible for them for the rest of their lives, that you own all of the power that it takes to get them to become healthy, well-adjusted adults, and no one should stand in your way. It's not school choice. It's parental sovereignty. And it's so basic, we shouldn't even fight about it. Now, I'm about, thank you for that, Chris. Uh, we got we, we got Ray, and not only am I proud of his brother just for the, I mean, he's been working his tail off, and I'm sure there's some things he wants to share with you about some new things coming down the pike. But every day he shows up in schools and demands greatness and quality for kids and, and community folks. And so, Ray, can I get your final thought on what we talked about tonight and what you want to leave people with? Absolutely. Um, so first and foremost, shout out to Corey. Uh, congrats on the engagement. I see you out here in the street. <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Neil. Uh, thanks for coming through. It's like you can't bring Batman on the show without bringing uh, Mike. We can't bring Michael Keaton on the show without bringing Val Kilmer or whoever plays. <laughs> Another Batman. He didn't want to call one of the Robin. They could be X Men. They could be X Men and um, and uh, Patrick P Diddy Wolf can be uh, the professor. Whatever. <laughs> All right. So uh, a good body of research suggests school choice brings folks together in race. Harmony. So why are so many people against it? Uh, is it because they don't want their kids with ours? Because as Chris so eloquently states, not all kids are meant to be in school with one another. <laughs> and I'd be perfectly okay with folks that were a part of the government's tradition to put their kids in the same school and not in the school with my kids. That is my final thought. Also, Next week, we got the HERS podcast coming out on J13, and we got the Cure podcast coming out on J14. So look out for those two shows. J13, uh, does that mean January 13 to January 14? 
That's her. Okay, I just I'm I I wasn't trying to be funny. I really was like, what is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> man. Well, one uh, as we roll into this, I want to thank our guest again for for coming and dropping that knowledge. Uh, I really truly appreciate it. And but I want to give a really special shout out to my eight black hands brothers. And I say that because this actually wasn't an easy show to put together. I I changed it a few different times, but I really wanted us to build some stuff that people could take home, take notes on, and like leave this episode a bit smarter. Like not just pumped up because we'll get you pumped up and riled up, but I wanted you to have, I wanted you to see these things in clear numbers. And so I appreciate them appeasing me on that. I want to thank the new Patreon members that have just signed up. And we got a bunch of new members that listen in today um, (laughs) that haven't heard how we feel. Uh, Again, I'm not in love with any system, right? I think like Chris said, like there shouldn't be choice in the sense of all I really care about is agency. And like, I want our parents and students and communities to be equipped with the tools so they can make the best decision possible for their kids uh, and and for their families and not have to feed into lies and BS. And the same way that I see police union leads getting held accountable for what what happened at the at the at the um, at the Capitol, like they finding people. One of them is from Chicago. It's a whole bunch of police union leadership that they found in that stuff. All I'm saying is you can hold these union, uh, these education union folks accountable too. You can hold them accountable for what they're doing to your kids' minds and brains. And it's, again, I think that there should be a such thing as education malpractice. I truly, truly do. Um, because so many of us get abused and, and, and by all that stuff, man. So thank you all for um, for joining us. Thank you to Chris. Thank you to Ray. Uh, and thank you to Sharif. I'm really honored to be on this show with you all. And hopefully I didn't drive y'all crazy with all the prep for this week. Uh, but you've been listening to the A Black Hands uh, podcast. If you have not, please hey, hold up, hold up, wait. Because <laughs> Chris, Chris prepped his ass off last week, so it's like when you say all the prep for this week, it's like you saying that we're no prep last week. I ain't said nothing about that. I'm saying thank y'all for dealing with me and being patient as I put in a whole bunch of stuff. That's you can't even thank people. You see. Corey, Ray, Ray is just messy. He just got to be messy. Just I, let him be messy. I just, I just, like just I said, but, but but again, and and for the for our Patreon members, if there are other trainings or other questions that you have, um, we can I can do our best to make sure that we provide something for you that's uh, exclusive to you all as Patreon members. We just want you all to feel special uh, and know that. The way that y'all have our backs, we have yours too. Again, you've been listening to the A Black Hands oh, podcast. One more thing, one more thing. Mama Toya has You better, better a, close this show out. Mama you better Toya. close this show out. You better Mama close this show out. It's fine. Go ahead. Just finish it. Just finish it, Ray. Go ahead, bro. Mama Toya has a podcast coming out. Okay. The Six Black Hands. Ladies no, and gentlemen, no, 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 you've been no, listening no, no, to the no, no. Six Black right. Hands. Yeah. <laughs> right. Go ahead. Take us out, Ray. You don't go ahead. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Six Black Hands. Go ahead. We love y'all, man. What? <laughs> Come back, Raymond. Uh, y'all have an amazing night. Uh, yeah. and, and have fun with us next week, man. Uh, and it, we promise it, it'll be just as entertaining. Y'all be blessed. You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stuart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening.